0: You are listening to National Security Law Today.
1: Okay, hello, and welcome to this afternoon's program, uh, a conversation with Avril Haines, Director of National Intelligence. I'm Mary DeRosa, the uh, Chair of the Advisory Committee to the ABA's Committee on uh, Law and National Security A few words about the Women in National Security Project, which is the sponsor of this event. The Standing Committee on Law and National Security uh, established this group to support and promote women who are or or would like to be engaged in the practice of national security law. And uh, we have been extremely lucky to have Jennifer O'Connor agree to, to chair the project. So Jen O'Connor, who is also moderating today and is with us here, is familiar to many of you uh, and has held a number of important positions in and out of government, most significant for today's purposes. She was the general counsel of the Department of Defense and was also the deputy White House counsel in uh, the Obama administration. And now to uh, to introduce our very distinguished guest, we're truly delighted to have with us Avril Haynes, uh, the Director of National Intelligence. She is the first woman Director of National Intelligence and the first woman uh, ever to lead the US intelligence community. DNI Haynes has also held a number of, uh, of other leadership positions in national security, uh, including Principal De- Deputy. Uh, national security advisor, uh, and deputy director of the Central Intelligence Agency. But she got her start in national security as a lawyer, and um, she, uh, she got her law degree from Georgetown Law, as did Jen O'Connor, so uh, uh, well represented here. Um, uh, she served as a lawyer in the State Department, uh, and uh, on the Hill and in the National Security Council where I had the, uh, the great pleasure of working with her. Um, and uh, she is also incidentally a uh, distinguished former member of the Standing Committee uh, on Law and National Security. So I could go on for a, a very long time about DNI uh, and Haynes. She has a really interesting backstory <laughs> but uh, I won't take any more time away from the conversation. And I, I'll just uh, close by saying what anyone who, met, who has met Everly Haines knows, uh, that in addition to being an extraordinarily talented, uh, dedicated public servant, uh, she is a, a generous person who devotes a, a lot of time and thought to helping people uh, navigate the national security field and uh, so I can't think of a better person for the kind of conversation uh, that we're having today. Uh, so thank you very much Jen and Avril uh, for agreeing to join us today and I am looking forward to the conversation.
0: Thank you so yeah. much Mary. Good afternoon d i Haynes. First let me echo Mary and say thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to talk with us um, we're so pleased to have you and so very proud that you uh, are one of our alums and are in the role that you are in today. I want to start off with a question about a recent visit that you took. Um, we saw a couple weeks ago you went down to Florida and visited with the Florida International University students there, and so many colleges would love to have you visit. And I understand this was your first college visit as DNI. So, can you tell us? How did it go and and what were you hoping to accomplish?
2: Yeah, absolutely. But before I get started on that, can I just say just how wonderful it is to get to be with you, Jennifer and Mary, who was my favorite boss, working with her meant that I worked for her actually at the National Security Council when she was legal advisor. I was her deputy, and it was an extraordinary privilege. And honestly, I can't think of two women who are better suited to guide women in national security. I mean, the two of you are just remarkable. And it is... um, you know, just a piece of the larger community that I feel like we had the great honor to be a part of in national security law. I mean, both women and men, extraordinary people across the board. And it is, um, you know, things that that I learned out of that time are critical to anything that I've done right since. So really appreciate that. But, um, but also I just, you know, for women in national security and what the ABA has done in this space and the project that you're running, Jennifer, but also just, Mary's work over the years, all of the people that have contributed to this, Holly and others, it's uh, its so important, I think, to have these moments where you can actually be part of that community and and honestly just be able to talk to each other about the challenges that you face and, you know, the opportunities that you're looking at and how you think about the law and how you think about your professional career and I know I just benefited so enormously from other mentors in the course of my career, and I just I um, really just grateful for the fact that you're doing this. And I'm really honored to be here, uh, feeling as if, frankly, I should be interviewing the two of you instead of the other way around. But in any way, on on Florida, I'll see. It was a very conscious selection. Um, I think uh, a few things. One is that. Um, The university that I went to is a center of academic excellence for the intelligence community. It's among a whole series of universities that have that position in a network that we have been developing. Uh, It is also, you know, brought us a really wealth of students who have been interested in, in the intelligence community who've gone out in a whole series of different spaces Within our intelligence community, and have been part of programs that are run there that uh, have an opportunity to interact with people who work with us. You know, some of them in the intelligence community, some of them former, some of them folks who work in the military who have worked with us. Whole series of of different people, and uh, and I've really been incredibly impressed by the talent and the extraordinary folks that come there. But it was also, you know, as I mentioned at the outset a signal because it is among other things, uh, a mostly Hispanic uh, student body has remarkable diversity in the student body more generally. And uh, and I really am absolutely committed. It is among my highest priorities to see the intelligence community become more diverse, inclusive and equitable in our work. And I think it's critical. Honestly, I mean, I realized that, that you, uh, you know, think about these things too. And have worked on these issues as well as as Mary and so many of the folks that are with us. But for me, it's, it's a mission issue. In other words, I think we will be better as an intelligence community, we'll do our work more effectively if we are a diverse community and that, you know is is true for a variety of reasons not the least of which is the fact that if you're going to try to understand the world having a diverse community is going to be more effective in that respect but it's also about the fact that from my perspective i really believe that government institutions in particular have a responsibility to reflect america i have so often seen how bringing different perspectives to the table changes the conversation in ways that allow us to reveal decisions that maybe we didn't even realize we were making or issues that we are overlooking. And I, I think it's a critical aspect of understanding why you want different folks with different perspectives, experiences, and knowledge sitting at your table. And I think, you know, it's, it's certainly in my career, I've seen how much of a difference that makes. And I really believe that's important to reflecting America, to serve America in a sense. So that's another piece of the puzzle. And then finally, I mean, honestly, In addition to the sort of ethical and legal pieces that are there, I want to work in a diverse and inclusive environment, and I suspect other talented folks will want to work in a diverse and inclusive environment environment, and I believe that's important. And something that I've been really interested in seeing as I've come back into the intelligence community is how much consensus there is among the leadership of different components within the intelligence community as to the importance of having a diverse and talented workforce. That this is something that we really need to focus on, the people in our community or our future, and that is a piece of ensuring that they are the future that we want them to be. So it's a, it was a long answer, sorry, to a relatively short question. But I had a great time and really met some extraordinary people there. And I'm looking forward to having other opportunities to visit universities around the country.
0: It sounds like it was great. And um, I I know you're focused on diversity and includes obviously this kind of diversity of background, but also diversity of perspective. And um, I wanted to ask you a question that I hear from a lot of young people who are interested in getting into national security law is What's the path that I should get on? What kind of experiences should I get? What kind of organizations should I work for? And having that kind of variety gives you a different kind of diversity, which is a a diversity of experience and perspective. And you've worked in um, the executive branch in a number of different agencies in the legislative branch and also outside of government. Uh, And so I'm wondering what kind of advice do you have about whether there are particular experiences to try to have or particular places to try to work in order to have the kind of perspective that um, that you're talking about wanting to bring into the IC and the government?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so in the context of working in government, I have been blessed by working, as you point out, in a whole series of different institutions, and I found it to be really valuable to me. I, in other words, I think that I've been able to do my job more effectively as a consequence of having sat in different places and understanding better as a consequence, kind of what were the equities that they were likely to be focused on and how I could make an argument more effectively to them of what it was that I thought was in the best interest of the government more generally, but also for the institution I sat in. And um, having worked, as you point out, like in the legislative branch and the executive branch and even the judicial branch, I felt every one of them had a different character in a sense you know and different kind of key focus areas and ways in which they would argue their positions and and even the law differs right I mean it's it's a kind of an interesting thing to learn that in the executive branch we have one position about how to interpret you know a particular provision of the constitution whereas in the legislative branch they might have a slightly different position long held and there's a dispute and you begin to understand why there's that dispute and what the institutional kind of equities are that led to that interpretation. And that makes it easier to navigate, honestly, in order to understand kind of how it is that you're gonna be thinking about these issues and how you advise your client about what the risks are of they're taking one position versus another, who's gonna be ticked off and you know what their likely response is and so on. And, um, and I found that too, be true. Also within the executive branch, I just had a lot of opportunities to work in different institutions: uh, the State Department, the White House, the intelligence community. You know, in different spaces, CIA, obviously. Nowody and I, all of those taught me something. I the so to to answer your question more directly, I I do think it's useful to try different parts of the government you know so obviously there's no perfect way to approach this and you may decide that there are different things for the professional career that you're pursuing that are of more interest or less interest but um, but even just getting out of the institution that you want to be in, let's say, for your career is useful because you actually get a different perspective of it from another place. You know, you sort of get a feel for what is the caricature of the State Department or what's the caricature of the IC and and how can you contest that when you need to under certain circumstances. You also get a chance to Sort of make friends and understand better the networks that are available to you when you need to get something done, and uh, and that's critical. Working in government, I suspect, and also in a variety of other institutions that I've worked in outside of government, I found that to be an issue as well. But when I've thought about my own career, and I sometimes ask people about this, and um, and you know, and and sort of offer it as a way to think about things. I have uh, often tried to think about what are the sort of skills that I've had an opportunity to work on as a lawyer, for example, or a policymaker, or intelligence officer, whatever it might be. Um, what are the skills that I feel like I'm not as great at? And there are a lot of them. Uh, and you know, and whether or not the job that I'm looking at next might help me with some of those, I've thought about the the different sort of. Um, perspectives that I might learn about substance so you know if you're interested in weapons of mass destruction you know and thinking about non-proliferation issues you may want to work in an office that does work on the regions that you think are going to be most interesting to that uh, issue set to get that other substantive knowledge in order to really bring it together with what it is that you're doing. And then third is the institutional piece that we've just been discussing, which I, I really do think is useful. And I, I found in my own you know, experience from a legal perspective, um, it, I did think that working in different branches actually was really interesting to understand kind of the different approaches to the law. I also found that working in an international organization was really just totally fascinating and a completely different perspective and because i had an interest in international law it helped me much like working in the legislative branch helped me be better at the executive branch work help you know having worked in an international organization helped me be better i think in a u.s government position because i sort of had a better understanding of some of the challenges that those international organizations face, and also the, you know, both the limitations, but the opportunities for how you can work with them to further positions that you're focused on. And so all of those things I found to be kind of worthwhile, at least to think about for whatever the particular professional career you're interested in it is. Thank
0: you. There's one other sort of uh, diversity aspect I was thinking about asking you, uh, which is, um, obviously you've been um, a woman in a field that has been largely male for a long time, and it's changing. Um, And sometimes when you're the only woman in a room, sometimes younger than other people uh, in the room, um, sometimes some people find that uncomfortable. And I'm wondering, um, I'm sure you've been in in the position of being I don't know if you're uncomfortable, but being the only woman in a room, and I'm wondering um, if you could tell us about any of those kinds of experiences and what skills or qualities you've
2: um, drawn to be successful in those kinds of circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, I'd be so interested in your thoughts on this too, Jennifer. <laughs>
0: I It is. I, um,
2: so there's a couple things that I feel like I've learned that I have no idea if they'll be worthwhile to other people, but one is that um, you know there are some people that just react to you for reasons that have nothing to do with you in a sense it, it, personally right like whether it's because you're a woman and they make assumptions about you or for other reasons um you know there's so many in some respects and uh and something that i've really come to feel is first of all that it is useful to talk about this with other people that you work with sometimes. Um, it, it, you know, both women and men, I found, and uh, and sometimes that's because you need to kind of check your judgment. You're, you're sort of like, was it because I said something really stupid, or is it because they were just reacting to me as a woman? And you know, and how just trying to parse that for yourself tends to be a challenging thing, as you're you know kind of going through things and. Um, And that is useful, I think, to sort of get a feel for, you know, how other people have experienced uh, a person or an event, um, you know, with colleagues that you trust and like. But another part of it that I've picked up on, at least for me, is that it is rare that, in fact, their reaction, if it's a particularly strong one or you feel as if you're just hitting a, a wall or you're not being listened to or things like that, it is really rare that it's it really has anything to do with you. In other words, it's it, it's so much more likely, and sometimes it's just somebody has a really bad day, right? I mean, it's not, it but it's so much more likely that it has something to do with that person and not about you. And if you keep that in mind, if you don't take it personally, but you actually just power through and try to do the best job that you can, in a sense, and. Um, and accept that there are going to be some challenges that you can't overcome, but there are many that you can over time, you know, then you tend to serve yourself well in those circumstances. And I am—I um, have found a number of places where uh, I've done a thought exercise for myself. I have no idea if it would work for others, but you know, where you have somebody who seems to have that kind of reaction to women, and, you know, I pretend they're like an uncle in my family or something like that. Like, you know, because part of the challenge is making sure that you don't stop listening to them, that you don't lose respect for them. And it is, uh, in many respects, that's very easy to do when you're being treated a particular way that uh, you think is, you know, nothing to do with you. And you sort of say, well, why is this acceptable? And so on, it's not. <laughs> but the reality is you still have to deal with those folks sometimes. And and I think, um learning to figure out how it is that you can do that while still getting the best out of them is really important and over time i have found a lot of the time you you can break through personally in a way that changes the dynamic that actually allows things to go forward that should not let you, um, how should I say this? That shouldn't affect how you define yourself or how you are perceiving yourself. Because I think that's another aspect of this that's challenging, right? Like you can't um, begin to accept the way people are sometimes viewing you. You have to surprise them, make sure that, you know, you maintain who you are in those circumstances. But it's critical that, you know, you also recognize that, you know, a lot of people are not perfect, myself included. I will do stupid things all the time and make a tremendous number of mistakes. And I just, what I wanna keep on doing is be ultimately proud of the work that I did at the time and that I you know, brought my best to the table, that I worked to try to get to the best answer, that I've you know, listened to everybody that I need to listen to and that I'm ultimately moving forward on that basis. And I think those kinds of things, it, that tends to be among the most challenging. I will say it's a lot easier to talk about than it is to do. And I have not always succeeded in you know, trying to, to manage it in the way that I would like to. But I really do think um, recognizing that you know how other people are sometimes treating you is not about you and more about them. And if you can do your best to be as generous as possible in the circumstance and just focus on the work, that um, it often uh, works well. I would also say that another thing I have learned is, um, and just by going through so many different institutions and jobs, it's very different in different places. And, you know, the same government, even the same institution, you can be in one office and, and, you know, and, and two offices, for example, in, in one institution, one they can both be very heavily male dominated or, uh, you know, if, if it's a different issue of diversity, some other dominated, you know, majority dominated uh, space and yet In one office, the culture can be phenomenal and allow you to thrive, and in another, it can be very challenging. And I think recognizing that your experience is not what every other woman or person's experience is, is important, because sometimes they'll express concerns that you may not have, but may be totally reasonable for them. And you need to be aware of that and try to make space for that in many respects, and um and recognize that ultimately once you end up in management positions as you know really the women who are going to be and uh listening to this hopefully from a legal perspective will be you know that then you have to make space for the people that are coming up underneath you and to really create a culture and an atmosphere that allows them to be who they need to be and and that changes over time i think each of our generations like i am just so astonished and inspired by the young women in the intelligence community they are absolutely incredible they are having different experiences than i had they are approaching it in a different way and i want to facilitate what makes sense for them and not just what i remember i needed you know so it's it's critical i think for us to to sort of grow and and keep on listening obviously to each generation as it's moving through these experiences
0: I, I will tell you that all resonates so much with my own experience okay, yeah. it does. Um, but, um well. But let me, let me shift and ask you one other sort of background question um, because the another of the really interesting parts of your background is that you've both, you've bridged the legal and policy roles in the sense that you were a lawyer and legal advisor and now you're a, a policymaker and implementer and you have your own lawyers. And I'm curious if you have um, advice for either side of that coin. That is for the lawyer who's advising the policymaker, or the policymaker that's now seeking legal advice based on having seen it from both sides of the relationship.
2: Yeah, it's a really, it's a fascinating area, frankly, because I spend so much time thinking about it. I mean, I think a couple of things, like one thing that I have felt is if we don't spend enough time on is teaching people how to be uh, effective in meetings. We spend so much of our time in government in meetings, right? You know, it's an incredible aspect of our job. And um, and I have lots of views about that. Like, I, I really think there is something almost unethical about not saying what you think in a meeting. I think that's an incredibly important aspect of our work because you've got a seat at the table and situation, you're often representing other people. And so y- you need to make sure that you're doing the best to represent their work, but you're also the person sitting at the table. So if you don't say what you think, right, then who else is going to say it? And it's critical to to really try to bring everything you can in those moments. I think another aspect of it is um, is understanding what's your role at the table. And this kind of gets to the Question that you're asking about the kind of legal policy piece, but also for the intelligence community, intelligence officer is another role at the table that's different from policymaker or legal. And in each of these roles, you know, I think thinking about what is appropriate and what's not is important, even though I believe that under certain circumstances, you need to actually break those appropriate roles. So here's what I mean by that. Like, so if you're, um, I remember somebody saying this to me once, they said, you know, uh, if, if the, they put it in the context of the president because it was somebody who was working with the president, but it's true in a lot of circumstances, right? Like if the president asks you your opinion on something and wants to know it, you should tell them, right? Like you're in the room, you should give it to them. Now, I believe that to some extent, but I actually think there are limitations to that. And, and here's how I think about it. I, you know, as a, um, As a lawyer, right? Obviously, you're at the table to provide the legal view. You're not there for the policy, and you're not there to provide intelligence analysis. And and I think there's a lot of reasons for why it's critical for you to understand that role and to represent that at the table. Part of it is you are representing, generally, you know, as you did. Department of Defense, you know, you were the general counsel, you'd come to the table and you'd bring the Department of Defense's general counsel's view to that table. And you had a lot of folks behind you. And I had that feeling in the context of when I was legal advisor for NSC, or, you know, I was trying to represent perspectives um, in different uh, agencies and departments in that context. So you have a responsibility in a sense. And, um, and the the system generally the process that's been set up i think has been set up with that in mind that you have a lawyer at the table who is going to bring those perspectives to the table so that you can actually incorporate them into the thinking and the decision making that's being conducted right and that is true obviously for the policymaker and for the intelligence officer each plays a role in that sense they are bringing forward what it is that their buildings or their offices you know have worked on and their best view in these areas and, you know, for the intelligence community, there's enormous trade crap that goes into analytic work. When I present a key judgment that the intelligence community has come forward with, this is not something that somebody just, you know, decided that morning when they woke up, right? Like, there's a lot of work that goes into, okay, we have a basis for that judgment, we've done our trade craft, we've thought about here, you know, we have a certain level of confidence that we're associating with that judgment. So it is, hopefully more reliable, it is something that, you know, the policymakers understand in that context, they're able to base their decision-making on those issues. So that's one piece of it. But another piece of it too, I think, is that you are um, you are uh, in a position in which uh, you are providing to that decision-making process, the best advice on those issues, right? So if you are representing the military at the table, you are assumed to have an understanding of what it means to achieve certain military objectives and to provide your best advice on our capacity to do so. If you turn to the diplomat in the room and you ask them what is their military advice, I think that's a circumstance in which it's appropriate For the diplomat to say, I am simply not qualified. I don't have the experience that the military advisor here has, right? That's not my role. And that's not something I should be providing advice on. And I don't want to, in effect, provide information that would, um, you know, corrupt is maybe too uh, strong of a word, but that would ultimately bias the discussion in a way that's unhelpful or, you know, unacceptable, right? And, um, and similarly from an intelligence community perspective, I think there are certain things that I'm, I'm certainly not going to provide the military advice at the table similarly, and I would say that that's a piece of it. There's another reason too, though, I think that is true, particularly for lawyers. And I know I thought about this a lot as a lawyer and had colleagues and mentors who thought about this too, which is just that your credibility, is at stake based on what it is that you're providing your advice on, right? And and as a lawyer, if you start to weigh in on the policy discussion, people will assume that your legal advice is tied to your policy views to some extent. It's almost like, you know, when you recuse yourself, even if there is not an actual uh, conflict, you may do so simply because there's an appearance of a conflict because there is essentially a point at which people simply will not trust that you are objective on an issue. And that is true for intelligence officers as well, right? It's it's a kind of a, you are sitting at the table and you're providing key judgments. And if you are perceived as having a policy perspective, there's just less trust in your analytic perspective on an issue. If you're you know in effect, because you almost always are by virtue of the key judgment that you're providing, siding with one side of the discussion or the other, right? And so it is, um, I think that's another reason for why you want to, sort of temper your uh, your interest in providing sort of additional perspectives at the table. And I certainly thought that was important in all of these roles, but I do think there's a moment at which when you're asked your thoughts on something, it may be an ethical issue. It may be something that is, you know, it's, it's something where you feel as if there is a moment in which um, you know you're being asked your personal view on an issue that is less about expertise and more about what do you think is the right answer and and i think in those moments leaders sometimes want you know those perspectives from the people that work for them and i think it's important to actually put them out there it is challenging in many respects because actually saying what you think is so much harder i think than you realize like before you get into these situations and you have to actually do it in a way that I think always trying to be kind, but also to be direct and honest about why it is that you think that what your your view is, because you're almost always disagreeing with somebody who frequently you respect and care about and think is taking also, you know, a very candid and, and reasonable view in a situation. But it's, um, anyway, I think all of those are, are sort of critical to thinking through this space. And then the final thing I'll say about the lawyer versus policymaker dynamic that I, I think is so, you know, and I'm sure you have gone through this too, but like often policymakers will not want to make a decision and just give it to the lawyers. And that's not okay. You know, like very frustrating, right? Like they just, it's, it's sort of, um, it can be a, a punt, you know, a kind of, we would call it or a duck, you know, on something. And I really think it's important for policymakers to actually say, you know, as much as they can, it's not that you should always take a decision on every issue that's put before you because there are moments when the decision's not ripe or there's more information to be gathered you know is as, as part of the context or you know you're not ready uh, there's all kinds of reasons for why it may be important not to make a decision in a particular moment but um, but I do think it's important to be as uh, you know, sort of direct as you can, and to help lawyers really focus on the thing that you are actually interested in doing, and make sure that you're um, dealing with that. On the other side of it, um, I also, as a lawyer, I hated it when policymakers. This would happen particularly at like retirement ceremonies or celebrations of lawyers, right? Where they'd be like, "Yeah, you know, this lawyer was great because." They were a yes lawyer, and I'd be like, "What does that mean?" <laughs> like, that's just a terrible way to talk about. It. And it's not like you have to be able to accept when your lawyer says no. That's you know, from our perspective, not legal. But also, rarely are things that cut and dry. It is sort of more likely that you're in a situation where the lawyer is saying, "You know, look." here is sort of what is legal and here's what's not legal there's a lot of gray space in between here is where you are taking increasing risk the increasing risk might be litigation or it might be some other type of risk or congressional you know disagreement or variety of other things and those are things to be uh you know considered that's a great lawyer a great lawyer in my view helps you understand the landscape within which you're operating and Um, And really helps you to understand, among other things, what the implications are of your decision beyond the particular decision that you're taking, which is so uh, challenging to do in those moments, because you often have a group of folks who are in front of you who are looking to make a decision about a particular crisis issue or whatever it is that you're focused on and and they're focused on the best outcome obviously in the context of that decision and as well they should be in many respects but part of what the lawyer is able to tell you is well here's what we've always done. And here's the line we've not crossed. And this is why. And this is the, you know, the implications of that for future decisions and how it is that the government operates institutionally or normatively or in a variety of other areas. And often those will not be strict legal rules, but they will be important to understanding the implications of your decision. And I am Somebody I just I've had the blessing of had just wonderful lawyers when I've been either in positions like I am now or in policy positions and Chris Fonzone, who is our general counsel is, I mean, just spectacular and his office and yeah right and has also had opportunities to be in other institutions like DOD and the Department of Justice and so it's you know, in my view, he's always value added in every meeting, and so is his office, who's made up of really spectacular lawyers, and I could not be prouder to be sitting next to them and also to getting their advice in every circumstance. So it's it's more obviously just focusing on what you have to do, but I have not found that to be a problem, mostly because I really, I'm constantly learning, and I need to focus on what I'm supposed to be doing, so have been very lucky in that respect.
0: And I will say, you, I, I, I know so many of the people that have lawyered for you, and you are very lucky with the, the legal talent that you have. years. Truly. Um, let me shift gears and switch over and ask you about some of what you've learned and experienced as CNI. Um, how about surprises? What's the most surprising thing you've encountered in your in your new job?
2: I am so bad at this question. Can I say, I, you know. <laughs> It's not so much the surprise, but but I will say that every morning, one of the most fun things about the job is um, reading the president's daily brief. And it's not fun because it's filled with like happiness and joy by any means, but it is. It's remarkable what the intelligence community produces every day for the president and for his senior advisors, for the military, for policymakers, folks across the the government and the national security enterprise. And and it's it is always in some respects, there is an aspect of it is that is surprising, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a not so great way. But there are just so many different aspects of the world today that we're focused on in the context of national security. And I think you know everybody comments on the fact that our definition of national security has gotten bigger over the last several years and that increasingly A variety of different types of expertise are critical to our work, and uh, and I get to see that on a daily basis. I mean, really, just extraordinary the different types of expertise that are called upon in order to actually understand the challenges that we're facing, and you know, whether it's in technology or in the context of climate, or you know, it it just in a whole range of things. It's resources, water. You know, you can just really. a wide, wide range. And it's part of why we need to recruit in such an extraordinary way in order to really bring talent of every different type and expertise into the intelligence community. But it it also keeps things just absolutely fascinating and, um, and really, Intellectually, like I think that it, when you're learning new things, you feel more alive. And that's a great part of what the intelligence community has to offer. So please, please apply if that's not obvious as an ad for <laughs> the intelligence community. I hope you will. Um, so
0: that's a great answer. I did not expect you to say PDD, but there you go. <laughs> um, how about hurdles? Have you encountered any hurdles or roadblocks um, that you've seen in, in, in your new job?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of challenges for the future. I mean, one of the things I found really interesting coming in is um, I spend a lot of time on the budget. I've been learning a tremendous amount about the budget. It's one of the big pieces of my job, in a sense. And trying to be a steward of resources, but also think through, in a sense, Kind of a vision for the future of the intelligence community with the senior leaders who are managing the various elements within the intelligence community and there are a lot of them there are 17 besides the odni which is the 18th um and uh and we tried to get together as we were kind of formulating the annual budget right after i got into the job to to think through, like, what are our priorities? How are we going to essentially uh, talk about the budget to Congress and to others and focus it in a way that uh, matches what we think is most important for the future of the intelligence community? And what was really interesting about it, I found, is that while everybody puts China at the top of the list, and I think, you know, it's a kind of a we call it an unparalleled priority, a pacing threat, Like all kinds of ways to, to talk about it. And it, it stretches across a range of, of issues for us, obviously. Um, the reality was the main things that everybody agreed on were structural issues. So the priorities that people identified were um, recruiting and retaining a talented and diverse workforce at the top of the list. And that is a critical priority across the board. Another one was essentially investing in science and technology to maintain a competitive edge, and um, and there's lots of ways you can think about that in the context of our work. Whether it's in, um, you know, focused on science and technology for us to do our mission more effectively, or it's in the context of understanding, uh, you know, science and technology more effectively in order to do, uh, you know, effective collection, analysis, and uh, Revealing, in a sense, where we are um, as compared to the rest of the world in these matters, or it's you know in the context of thinking through how do we bring to bear science and technology on a range of issues, including resilience for critical infrastructure or other pieces of the puzzle, right? So, so that was another big piece um, for us. A third was uh, it really kind of classically partnerships, partnerships not just with the private sector, which is what a lot of folks focus in on and is a critically important issue for us and um, one that we spend a lot of time on. And I feel like it's been a perennial issue. I know anybody who's been in government has been saying for a long time, we need to improve our public-private partnerships. And it is just increasingly true. And we still remain challenged in many spaces on those issues. But it's also partnerships with frankly, other parts of the government, state and local tribal entities across the um, country. It is also about partnerships with partners and app- allies around the world. It's partnerships with academia. It's partnerships with whole series of different entities as we increasingly have to think through how are we leveraging what they do and what we do in order to actually, you know, have impact. And um, and so that's a was a, a third piece of the puzzle. A fourth was bringing in expertise for kind of long-range destabilizing issues into day-to-day work. And that has to do a lot with things like big trends that we see so climate is a huge one where we're really trying to understand what are in fact the, the long-term trends and how do we bring the science that is behind that into our day-to-day work on intelligence. So, you know, in places where you don't think about it necessarily um, being part of our analytic work, we want it to be. If you're thinking about um, uh, the impact of, you uh, I don't know, something like the JCPOA with Iran, right? Like you want to think like, is there a climate impact? How do we think about that, right? Like bringing it into all kinds of things that we may not normally uh, focus it on context, but also other types of expertise, technology expertise, techniques um, expertise in the context of uh, economics, or just a whole series of different areas that are critical to our day-to-day work and sometimes don't get lifted up as effectively in those contexts. And then resilience was a big piece of it, resilience for the infrastructure that we have. And, you know, cyber is obviously at the top of that list, but so are a lot of other things in that context. But what was, as I pointed out, like so interesting to me was just the the sort of overarching view among heads of components that if we're going to be effective in actually addressing the challenges that we're facing today, recognizing how increasingly complex they are, how fast the pace is for which we are facing them, right, and how quickly the landscape is changing in many respects, we have to build strong institutions that are adaptable and capable of then moving with that threat. And so that is critical, I think, to us actually dealing with what's ahead of us in the future. And in many respects, that are the most important thing that I hope to do while I'm here.
0: Um that that all makes so much sense. And one of the things that you were talking about was the, the landscape moving so quickly. Um, and I'm curious, I mean the the threat the threat environment seems to have changed a lot. Um, not just you know past 10 years, but past five, past three, past two, it seems to be accelerating, you know, in the way in which it's changing almost. And I'm wondering what you can um, just tell us about your general observations about that, how it's changing and, um, you know, the enhanced role of cyber and the the sort of closer connections between foreign and domestic threats and kind of what you're seeing, kind of big picture about the way the threat environment is shifting. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I I think
2: the way you asked the question, I like very much just because I think in some respects, what's most interesting is what is shifting, right? Like as opposed to, you know, threats that we've had for a long time that we continue to have, like, you know, thinking about DPRK or weapons of mass destruction or issues that are sort of classic for us in, in a variety of spaces. I would say a couple of things. One, you know, is, um, as you point out, the even in your question, the line between what's domestic and what's international has largely collapsed in many respects, and and this is something that I think the policymakers have talked about quite a bit. But it's particularly interesting from the intelligence community perspective about how we manage that, because the intelligence community is um, is institutionally like you know when you look back on the what actually created. The office of the director of national intelligence, right, was essentially 9/11 and the outgrowth of that circumstance, and um, and there's you know a law that was passed, the R.T.P.A. Um, that that essentially established both the office of the director of national intelligence and within it the national counterterrorism center, and. One of the things that it specifically focused on in that was actually bringing together the domestic and the international intelligence on terrorism and saying, we want the National Counterterrorism Center to produce a comprehensive strategy that is based on both domestic and international intelligence that is essentially uh, for the country more generally, right? And Um, And so this is an aspect of what we're supposed to be doing is really trying to understand how it is that we bring a, a, a picture to policymakers that brings those two things together and it's true in terrorism, you know, and, and that's a, maybe a more obvious thing to many people, but it's also true in a whole series of other areas. So if you think about um, foreign malign influence, election interference, things like that, you know, or even just other types of uh, foreign malign influence, it, you really can't tell the story about what's happening internationally and what it is that adversaries or, you um, know other countries are focused on in trying to influence uh the united states if you don't actually have the context of well what are they influencing in the united states what are they seeing that they want to influence what is the impact of that influence right and so in many respects we're trying to bring these pictures together to help policymakers see the whole if you're looking at cyber so much of what's happening in cyber right is happening on Infrastructure that's within the United States because so much of the cyber infrastructure is in the United States and we rely on it so much. And yet we're concerned about actors from outside of the United States. And so there's a, a kind of a one aspect of this is understanding how we do that. Well, at the same time, we recognize that there are strict limitations and different sets of laws and, and frameworks in effect that exist for how it is that we collect and treat and disseminate information that we collect for uh, you know foreigners who are outside of the United States versus um, US persons in the United States. And, um, and that we are managing um, you know, within the intelligence community, a range of operators who are focused in different spaces. So the FBI obviously takes the lead within the United States. The CIA is focused externally, right? And so you have these, these spaces where you have to bring together the picture, but you also have to maintain the frameworks that separate these pieces out in ways that are, you know, both intellectually um, understandable, but also um, that are respectful of civil liberties and privacy and the different protections that folks have. And, you know, and thinking that through is a huge piece of what we have to do. And it's just that it's become increasingly complicated, I think, in these spaces as we see the the interaction between, you know, what's abroad and what's domestically increasingly challenging to pull apart um, as effectively as, as we used to. So that's an area where I'd say it's a, kind of an interesting aspect of how things are shifting. Another part of it, from my perspective, and, you know, I think it, it's maybe in... Um, one that that so many of us talk about that it becomes tired, but I really, you know, fundamentally believe it, and I see a huge impact in the IC on this, is that as we're looking, you know, given increasing globalization, increasing mobility around the world, right? The reality is threats that happen, you know, really almost any place around the world right like can quickly become a threat to the united states right so it's not that we're interested in every threat around the world we have to prioritize we have to focus in on things that are most important to our interests and our you know policy concerns and so on but uh, whether it's a pandemic or it's you know some other aspect of uh, you know or terrorist men or things like that you just recognize that these things can be on our doorstep in a relatively short period of time and Um, and so figuring out how it is that we effectively collect and prioritize and provide the kind of indication and warning that is useful for policymakers is a critical part of the job but in all of these circumstances increasingly i think we recognize that partners and allies are really the only way in which we're going to be actually effective at dealing with this right because not only do you want countries where the threat first hits, right, to be more resilient and effective at addressing it um, and working with them to address it where it is so that it doesn't, uh, you know, sort of move outwards. Um, But you also need them to set up and establish structures that are sort of durable structures that even help to provide for that kind of indication and warning across a range of issues. And as a consequence in the intelligence community, I'd say a big thing, and this is obviously something the president talks quite a bit about, is just we're consistently not only trying to make sure that we're thinking that through, you know, as I mentioned in that partnership piece with partners and allies, but we're also trying to provide analysis that helps our policymakers understand not only you know, what we see, but also how other countries, our partners and allies, are perceiving an issue and how it is being perceived by some that are not our partners and allies so that we can actually navigate that landscape more effectively. And I think it's, it's another aspect of our work that sometimes is um, not focused on as much, but is absolutely critical, I think, to us being effective in setting up for good policy making and decision making.
0: I'm struck by um, your answer that the sort of the way in which so many different things are shifting and the need for different kinds of partnerships and different um, ways of bringing information together because of the ways that, you know, sort of priorities and threats and such are changing. And I'm wondering, you know, the intelligence community is, as you said, born out of 9-11 and uh you know, very much absorbed with counterterrorism work um, as its kind of prime mission at the beginning, um, but but the world you know is shifting, and there are so many other concerns now that are drawing your attention and the IC's attention. Um, how do you how do you turn um, a community that used to be so focused on CT to other priorities? Is that hard? How do you rebalance it?
2: Yeah, it's it is a constant issue. I was just meeting with my uh, British interlocutor yesterday, actually, and we were talking about these issues. I mean, it's it's something that it's not just us facing this issue. Obviously, our allies and partners are, are too. And I think, you know, part of it is obviously maintaining vigilance on terrorism, which we continue to do, and we believe continues to be an issue that we have to remain vigilant on, and um, and working through how we do that uh, appropriately. But at the same time, no matter where you put your resources, you're taking on risk, right? So, you know, if I look across the intelligence community, we have really, you know, an almost infinite list of threats and issues that we want to cover and that we're being asked questions about. And um, and so, a big piece of the game is prioritizing. And we have a a national priorities uh, intelligence. Uh, process essentially that is dictated by the policy community says these are the things that we believe are most important and um, and we work to ensure that we're effectively uh, prioritizing based on essentially their priorities. Um, And I would say one of the most remarkably bipartisan perspectives uh, that we have is on the challenge of China, in a sense, and um, and thinking that through, right? And so, you know, often this is framed as how are we shifting resources from counterterrorism to China, and uh, you know, and and are we doing um, enough to do that? And it's it is challenging from a number of different perspectives. So I think I think the short answer is yes, we are doing that, and I believe that we have been doing that for some time thinking through how it is that we allocate our resources effectively against a variety of issues not just China and the CT but that becomes kind of the two-dimensional you know caricature of this debate um, but I would say that, that some of the challenges to doing that effectively that are less obvious are as follows one is um, a remarkable number of folks in the national security community more generally have spent a piece of their career on counterterrorism Right. And, you know, one of the things that I've always found with this uh, is that um, just like, you know, when you learn a new word and then suddenly you feel like you're hearing it all the time, right? you know, when people have spent a lot of time on the Middle East and counterterrorism, they are more likely to spot those issues and pull them forward. Than they are other issues that they're less familiar with. And it is, um, there's a, a, a kind of a transition within the community moving from that, the counterterrorism in the Middle East being really um, a common feature of almost everybody's career, you know, in the senior levels of the intelligence community, now sort of shifting a bit to occupy other spaces. and um, And something that I remember seeing when I worked in the CIA was just how. We, would, you know, we knew the president wanted more analytic products on Asia and on Western hemisphere, right? And yet we kept on producing CT in the Middle East, right? And part of it was that, you know, folks just naturally like, oh, that's really important, you know, and sort of pull that. Another piece of it is that it tends to be the more urgent crisis, as opposed to the long-term issue, right? Like, and so if, if you're in an intelligence community and you're focused on indication and warning, right? It's a more obvious space for you to be pushing um, analysis, and so that ends up uh, sometimes getting. It. And so, really, another part of this challenge of shifting is ensuring that you're actually, just like with my inbox, I find like the urgent you know, ends up crowding out the important. Well, similarly here, you actually have to make a conscious effort to really invest in the long-term pieces of, you know, a a competition with China as opposed to the immediate threats of counterterrorism. And so just balancing that in a way is a part of it. Another part is that um, honestly, you know, an intelligence community, like it is, if you've got uh, a crisis and there's the potential for an attack, that is one of those clear areas where you raise your hand, right? And um, and as a consequence, those pieces tend to get written more frequently. And when you're looking for things to then put into the book or, you know, sort of into the analytic piece, like the fact that Those pieces have been written quite a bit, like often means that they're well-written. You're sort of like, oh, well, this looks good. You know, like you pull it forward. There's all kinds of things that you don't even realize kind of like our challenges to actually making some of these shifts in ways that are effective to accomplish what you know is sort of the longer term vision that you're trying to do. And, um, And so I think I've seen already significant shifts from when I was last in government to now And it's something that we're continuing to move forward. And another part of it that we're really trying to focus in on is ensuring that we're prioritizing within these baskets. Like where is the counterterrorism threat that's most important that we focus on and that we invest in, right? And what is the piece of the China challenge that we are going to be most focused on? And how do we actually sort of get the biggest bang for our buck in a sense? Um, But how do we actually make sure that we're allocating our resources in a way that's really going to be most effective for our Yeah, the policy committee. Anyway, sorry, too long of an answer. Uh,
0: No apologies. And um, I do think that brings us to our close. So D&I Haynes, thank you again for this um, insightful discussion. It's been great to see you and talk to you. And um, we are so grateful that you joined us today. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, It was such a pleasure to get to see you and Mary. And I just um, thank you so much. It's really lovely. And good luck to everybody out there. All right.